Welcome to the Lems Aware Podcast. We've been waiting for you. My name is Kevin Fryert, and I will be your host. Lambert-Eaton Myasthenic Syndrome, also known as LEMS, is a rare neuromuscular disease that can have a profound effect on a person's mobility and quality of life. LEMS Aware was created to deliver relevant information, resources, and connections to patients and caregivers who may be living with or affected by LEMS. The LEMS Aware podcast lets you hear from people in the LEMS community on topics that matter to you. Welcome back to the LEMS Aware podcast. We are so glad you've decided to join us again. Today we are talking to Romy, a LEMS patient and very active advocate for LEMS and rare diseases in general. So Romy, can you introduce yourself and your background without mentioning LEMS? Absolutely. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Kevin. Uh, my name is Romy. It rhymes with homie. I'm from Philadelphia. I um, went to college at the University of Arizona. I majored in radio, television, and film, and I was actually in the movie Revenge of the Nerds in 1984 as they filmed it on the University of Arizona campus. So I learned a lot because I was in a movie and I also majored in radio, television, film. It was kind of cool. I probably learned more from being in the movie than I did from actually taking the classes. So that was a lot of fun. And then once I graduated, my passion was to get into radio sales. I actually, in the early days, did not know what I wanted to do. So I interned in different parts of the radio station to find out what my best fit was. Once, literally, I saw the checks come back from the bank for the salespeople, commission checks. I was like, I know what I want to do now. So that kind of led me to want to be in radio sales and be able to sell something that was intangible to people to help drive their business and increase sales of product or merchandise. Wow. And so what kind of experiences do you have when you're doing that? What Life must be very interesting. It is very interesting. I have a passion for grocery retail because a lot of people want to, I want to reach people in their households where they live, work, and shop. And so these kind of promotions that I did with major manufacturers or even not so big manufacturers, like in the natural organic category, it was, um, I, I liked being able to put together a promotion that would live in the store. You'd hear it on the radio while you're pushing the cart. You see it in the circular while you're shopping. And then you see an end cap display with the same information. And those, those several things together equal results. And because today um, supermarkets have scanners, you're able to actually see actual sales results within a certain time period due to having the scans. Because when I first started as a checker chick when I was a teenager, we had to memorize the prices or if the stickers weren't on. So that fueled my passion. I did that most of my life. I tied into different things like Six Flags and Albertson Safeway is one of my biggest clients. I did things with CVS. I just didn't want to sell radio by itself. I wanted to be able to sell an idea and a concept so you could look at something and say, okay, I need you know, to sell 
10% more than I did last time with this promotion. And so that's once we would close it and they would get, gather the information from the analysis on the scans, it would show proof of performance. So now I'm trying to take that same kind of concept and use it in the rare disease community because we need to get to people where they live, work, and shop in grassroots marketing, which is I think I'm precedented because a lot of people seem shocked that I can secure a circular and be able to get into, for example, 15 million households, which is something I'm working on for this rare disease day. So, so tell, tell us a little bit about how you came into the rare disease community. When and how did you find out you had LEMS? Well, when on the job, I went to many cities with the iHeartRadio concerts and I was at the KDWB Last Chance Summer Dance in September of 1999. Big headliners, 98 Degrees, Shaggy, Christina Aguilera, Jeannie in a Bottle. And I was um, lifting magazines. I had a, a thought for a moment that I was Hercules. And I was lifting up these magazines and putting them over a fence at this horse farm where this concert was. And I herniated two discs in the process. So I was in chronic pain. I went through the event. I ended up coming home. I knew something was wrong with me because I was in so much pain and my left leg was completely numb and I had no time to deal with it. So for the next two years with the same tour, I went around the country and I had promotional groups at the stations that were hired to set up and hand out the magazines and all that good stuff. And I would just literally kind of sit in the corner and just observe because I was in so much pain. And then in 2001... My company, Clear Channel, had a national division that they were closing, and I was part of the national division, and they offered me a severance package of one year with full benefits or to work for a single station. Well, it's no secret that iHeart's a big fan of recycling employees, so I definitely took the package, and then I wanted to find out what was wrong with myself during that one-year time period. So during that time period, I had put my health first. I'd went and got an MRI to confirm that I'd heard two bulging discs that needed to be um, taken care of immediately. And I was also extremely overweight. So that year I took to get the surgery, lose weight, and then see how I felt after that. So after the surgery, I actually had no pain anymore. I was so grateful when I had to stand up on my feet after recovery and really felt no pain. And I did feel a lot of fatigue, although I just had major surgery, so I thought it was part of my recovery. However, over 365 days of feeling chronic fatigue, I was like, I should be over this already. Why do, I, why do my legs feel like lead? I, this somehow has morphed into something else, but I'm not sure what it is. So with that being said, I went to a regional hospital. I went back to the neurosurgeon, and we did a new MRI. And we looked at it together and he told me straight up, your surgery was fine. You have a problem. And I was like, what could that possibly be? Like, I don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I had my list of symptoms and he told me to bring them downstairs to his neurology buddy. So I went down there. He saw me for about three minutes, looked at my symptoms and said, this is classic MS. Why don't you come back next week for a full workup? So with my head down and my slight shuffle, I got back to my car and I was like, I don't have MS. I don't know how you get it. I don't know how you catch it, but I don't have that. I don't know what he's talking about. 
just in my mind, I was like, how could that be? Like, how do you even get MS? Like what? So I literally waited in denial for a few years. I didn't know what I had, but then in 2003, it just was just getting so, so difficult to get around. And I had to take that initiative and get a second opinion. I wasn't going to go back to the guy that said I have MS because, and I didn't even know anything about anything. So I literally went to a hospital in Center City, Philadelphia, and I got an EMG done from a specialist who does the EMGs. There's like these little needles that go all over the place to check your muscle function. And after that, and I had a VGCC antibodies test. Um, which I didn't even know, you know, calcium gain. I, I, would, I wasn't even sure what was going on. I'm just like, whatever you need to do, what do I have? Like, give me a pill. Let's keep moving. So after the um, EMG, uh, the doctor sat down with my mother and I and explained that I had Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome and that my calcium channels were blocked and that my brain wasn't telling the it wasn't going correctly for the left side of my body. It wasn't communicating well, and it was kind of getting stuck with these calcium channels. And I mean, this is how stupid I was about it. I really, I was like, do I drink whole milk, like lactate, free? What, what do I need to do? I thought it was a simple fix. And he was like, uh, not only doesn't milk work, but there's no cure and there's no treatment, which you know, brings me to today that only 5% of rare diseases have FDA approved medication. So although I was diagnosed with LAMS in 2003, he did make it clear that there is no treatment, there are no clinical trials, and go on with your life. He didn't even tell me I was disabled. So I just went back to work and did a lot of my work for my bed. Yeah. So how did you adapt then? You, you have this crushing fatigue you're going back to work. The doctor said, there's nothing I can do do for you. What did you do to accommodate all that? I like to frame it as I literally was Willy Wonka's grandparents. I was laying in bed, except for I had a laptop and I would do all my communication on the laptop. Now I was in national sales. So most of my job involved a lot of traveling and my husband was in a situation where he could help me. And we ended up running out the building that he that I met him in on my first walk-in cold call. And he joined me on the road, which made it easier for me to function because behind the scenes, I hid, I hid it as much as possible. My husband would be pushing me in the wheelchair to get to where I needed to go. Then I'd move over to a chair and just watch things happen, watch things happen. And I did that for nine years because I, I had to work. I didn't have an option. I mean, I was the chief wage earner of my family and I didn't even know I was disabled. I wasn't told even though, and, and I had all the things checked off from my work. But again, the word disabled just never crossed my mind. Yeah. It's a new way of thinking about yourself, right? And so I think at some point you did find out that Lambert Eaton would qualify as a disability. How did that change your life? It changed my, I mean, I was glad I got a diagnosis but there was no treatment for it. And I constantly asked the physician every six months, is there a clinical trial yet? Because the only way doctors communicated back in the early 2000s was through neurology notes or, you know, notes that get passed around from the neurology now, like here's what's new, here's a new study, here's a new outcome. It wasn't until I had to take matters into my own hands 
from literally seeing somebody at my pool during the summer, nine years later, she was laying at the pool and I went up to her and I asked her how her year was teaching. And she said to me, it wasn't good. I'm like, what do you mean it wasn't good? She's like, well, I was based, I was diagnosed with a rare disease and I got pneumonia every three weeks. I ended up in the hospital. So now I'm on disability. I can't work anymore. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense because you look normal. I think that's when the brick came out of the sky and smacked me straight up in the head and being like, this is you. Hello. You just, this is the mirror. Like this is your awakening. She has invisible symptoms. I can't tell she's disabled. And unless you really knew me, you didn't know I was disabled. However, I could never make it to the beach. So I only went to the pool. So that was a defining moment. And that was in August. That October, I had an appointment with my neuro neurologist. And I asked him straight up if I was disabled. And he said, yes. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me before? And he said, because you never asked. I was like, that's great. Great to know because you shouldn't rely on one doctor. You should always get a second opinion. And unfortunately, I didn't have the ability to know so much back then because we didn't have computers and I kind of had to rely on my own sense of what's right and wrong. So I did hang on for a few more years before I went off in disability when um, iHeartRadio took over Clear Channel. I had told nobody at work. Nobody knew what I had because I didn't even know what I had. I couldn't even explain the limbs. I could just explain my calcium channels were blocked and nobody would get it. And we had no Google. So they, I was rumored to have something wrong with me. People were saying I had Parkinson's because I'd fall a lot at work, which I tried to work it from home most of the time because, like I said, I couldn't explain it. And even now, like before I was, when, when I was not on the medication and I was in a transition period, um, from going to disability to figuring out my life, my next steps, I would stagger a lot and I'm really tall. So people will notice like my feet first to see if I'm wearing high heel shoes and they get the elevator eyes going on. And then they see like I'm the leaning tower of Pisa cause I'm like wobbling back and forth and my gait. And I've had actual people call the police that I'm intoxicated and I'm going to start my car. So there's been several occasions where a police car has, I'm going to leave the Starbucks and a cop car pulls right behind me so I can't pull out. Now I'm parked in the handicap section because I'm not having a good day, you know, really didn't have a lot of good days when I was not on the medication. And the cop, um, this one particular time literally scared the hell out of me because I just started, he parked there because he was just parking there to deal with something real quick. I had no idea he was there for me. So I rolled down my window and he put his face right in my car and he said, excuse me, are you okay? And he was smelling for alcohol. And I said, yes, sir. Um, I have MS. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, look, you were just doing your job. You know, I understand. And the reason why I said I have MS, Kevin, is because if I said Lambert my aesthetic syndrome, he might have told me I had the right to remain silent. I don't, you know, I have to get some explaining to do. I didn't want to go there. So I just said MS, go to vision, weakness, wheelchair, visually, boom. That's how I want the rare disease conversation to be, is like that big. Well, and that's what I wanted to move to, is that you're, you're known as an advocate for more than just limbs. So, and... 
the the experiences you just told us there, you know, invisible disease, mistaken what's going on, doctors not knowing, doctors misnaming it or misdiagnosing it, all of those things are because of a lack of awareness of rare disease. So why do you think it is important that you take a broader view here and you make people aware of rare disease in general? That's such a great question. And it's literally, it's a general market problem. And if I have to target 18 plus, then let it be. It's 18 plus across every demo, across every kind of community. It's from A for African Americans to Z for zebras and everybody in between because rare disease doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or, or who you are. This is kind of like a Russian roulette part of your life that you're not taught, talked about that doesn't have a conversation in high school or college about it. You don't learn about your autoimmune diseases. You don't learn about why people have MS. And even if you ask kids today, why are adults in wheelchairs? Their first answer is they got in a car accident. So there's no awareness. And that fuels my passion because there needs to be massive awareness, like on the same level as COVID. And that's, that's where I want to take this general market awareness. And if I'm able to reach 15 million people through a circular for example, with my mid-Atlantic test, and 1.5 million is one in 10 Americans of that number, that means potentially 1.5 million diagnosis, or even bigger than that, because they have family or they have knowledge, way more knowledge than they ever had before. And I got to keep it real simple, because people don't even understand the concept of rare. I want rare to be the topic. This comes right back to where you had that passion for selling something intangible, hard to describe, hard to sell. How are you using that professional experience now and, and your network of contacts and all of that um, in this new form of advocacy? Well, I have the contacts in grocery because that's the promotions that I did for most of my career. So I, but I, I literally, ha I had to wait a few years to kind of figure out how the pharmaceutical arena works, how advocacy works, what's up with all these symposiums and these meetings. I, I wanted to go to Nord a few times and see what they're talking about, Global Genes, see what they're talking about, go to several rare disease conferences that are specific for rare diseases, see what goes on there. And uh, what I saw was a great need for grand awareness exposure. I feel like the symposiums and all the meetings are recycled within the conference room. So I feel like it's my duty to get the word out of side of the conference room, outside of the conference, tell people that don't have a clue like I didn't about what could happen in their life. And also with genealogy, like that's a big deal. Like if they, if you pull your genes and for example, Baraka gene with um, Eastern European Jews is, and not all, not all Jews, just like Eastern Europeans. If you have the Baraka gene, you can now find out in advance and make some de decisions about how you want to handle your future. Do you want to get your ovaries taken out after you have kids to lessen your chance for breast cancer? You wouldn't even know this option unless you got the, the, the test. People don't even probably aren't even aware of that. You, you can also see the future of like 
does Crohn's one in your family? You know, like with things that you could possibly do preventive maintenance on in the future. Like my sister was able to get her ovaries taken out because my mom had the BRCA gene. And now if you have the BRCA gene, insurance companies are going to pay for that genealogy. And it really helps, especially with cancer diagnosis and stuff like that. They can look at your genealogy and help come up with solutions to help treat either what cancer you have or, you know, treatment for remedies for your autoimmune disease, because only 5% of rare diseases have an FDA approved medication. And a lot of disease states have therapies to help you live a better quality of life. The key is getting the diagnosis. And that's why I need to tell everybody. Yeah, I'm just, as you're talking about that, and I'm thinking about all the other rare diseases out there that people spend years trying to figure out what's going on with them. They don't even know until they get a diagnosis about what rare disease are, you know, that, that that thing exists. You know, they don't know what zebras are until they become one. And I think that by putting it out there and having people starting to consider, you know, maybe I should ask my doctor if I have something that's not as common instead of going for, for all the things that they're going down their list with, you know, maybe it's something different. I think that could shorten that diagnostic journey and that would be fantastic. Well, that's my goal, Kev, is to shorten the diagnostic journey. I mean, six to eight years is a really long time for people to suffer with symptoms. And it's really because, I mean, part of it might be denial, but also a big part of it is literally they just have don't have the knowledge to identify the symptoms like I did. I, I had... Well, my first time my knee gave out and I fell off that curb and slammed down on the you know, uh, street, I thought just my knee gave out. I didn't know that that was leading to other things. So when I reflect back, I, I now recognize that, you know, I did have symptoms for a while. And the other thing that I was completely clueless about is that if you have a rare disease and now you're, you're okay, I got a rare disease, I understand it, you can get another one. Then you have to re-understand the whole thing again. And that's really hard. I mean. So I'm really impressed how you took your professional passion and skills and experience and said, hey, I see an idea that no one else sees. So what advice do you have for other LEMS patients who probably dealing with the same struggle of, hey, what do I do now? Um, but how do they use their specific knowledge and skills and experience to make a difference in all this? Well, that would be good. It just depends. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of LEMS patients out there. On the LEMS Aware podcast, our hope is that you gain strength through hearing from LEMS patients and caregivers like you. If you would like to be a guest on the LEMS Aware podcast, please send an email to advocacy at lemsaware.com. LEMS patients can totally help themselves in the LEMS community and ask questions amongst other patients to gain knowledge for themselves, which is completely beautiful. Um, and actually, just to give you a little example, just like the COVID vaccine, I had one rare doctor tell me, go off your autoimmune suppressant, and I had my other rare doctor tell me to stay on it. So what do I do? Here's two people that I respect so much from two amazing hospitals, and I don't know what to do. So there's nothing like patient wisdom. I go into the LEMS community. I pose the question, how many of you went off your autoimmune suppression medication to get the COVID vaccine? Because it was all the conversation in the beginning. And overwhelmingly, people said they stayed on it. 
And that is how I made my decision. I told my doctor, the one that said, go off it. I said, I'm not going off of it. And I did get four vaccines and I was fine. I did get COVID and I had a flare. I broke out in a full rash. That was worse than the COVID. Um, so I went on prednisone and made it go away and I'm cool. I got my flu shot. I'm cool. I'm good. So I literally, what fuels my passion and what angers me, I guess, is that nobody told me about this. I didn't learn about rare disease. There's so many people out there that have no idea. I literally have to teach most people about what it is, even most doctors. So even when I spoke to the head of pharmacy for one of the biggest grocery chains in America, she said to me, please excuse me. I have no idea what rare disease is. Pardon my ignorance. Please, please tell me about it. So I gave her the brief 411 on it. I told her to go to two different organizations to check out their websites. I gave her my rare disease diagnosis as well to check out the Lems Aware site. And she, we had a Zoom the following day and she said, oh my gosh, I would be more than happy to help you get this word out. I had no, no idea what this was. And I'm like, you're pretty much general population. You know, she's in Idaho. I mean, like general America. So... You know, I've had people say to me, why don't you you focus on this group, focus on that group. Every group needs focus because, like I said, rare autoimmune disease does not discriminate. And I'm focusing on adults, Kev, because adults are the ones that need to have the knowledge. They don't teach this in school. And especially for adults that have children that might not be making their markers and in growth and if you're pay, if the patients or the parents are more educated, they could be more possibly empathetic to their kids and what's going on with their mile markers. Because I know me, for example, I tell my kids, oh, my knee hurts, walk it off. It ended up being okay, thank God. But sometimes they really can't walk it off. And I remember before I was diagnosed with lemons when I was really slow walking on the trails with my family or on the boardwalk in Ocean City, my mom would say, what the hell's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm built for comfort, not for speed. Like, I don't know why I can't move. So that's how I went with my limbs. I was just walked a little time, held on to ledges, sat down as much as possible. Because when I sat down, I felt the most normal. Um, but I feel like I made it through. And now I am on FDA approved medication. I went on clinical trials. I There's hope for people if they look for it. And the and the biggest thing, the takeaway is that, that you have to advocate for yourself or have somebody very close to you that can advocate for you. Because I promise for real, if you don't advocate for yourself, you'll be the last in line. Doctors, I think, appreciate when patients advocate to a point. There's some doctors out there that think, oh, you think you're smarter than me. But if a doctor is dismissive, I strongly suggest that you keep it moving because they might not have your best interests at heart. And I've went through a lot of that. And even though, you know, I'm in my 50s now, I've been through a lot of doctors and a lot of rare disease, and I'm still learning stuff. And I've still gotten blown off and told incorrect things. So you always need to be on the cutting edge of your disease, be relevant, know what's going on in your communities. Patient support groups are so incredibly important. And then I also want to share that information with the general public while they're going on their diagnostic journey and they're trying to figure out what their symptoms are. Like, just acknowledging that they identify symptoms, that something's going on and their antenna goes up is at least me making a big leap. I'm opening up the can. And it's actually getting people to trust those instincts. 
But I have an unplanned question for you. So do you want to make a prediction for the World Series? Yeah. Phillies! Eagles Super Bowl! Phillies World Series! Yes, go Phillies. We need some wins. We need some wins. I'm very excited. Kind of baseball is like watching paint dry, but not now. Thank you for listening to the Lems Aware podcast. You can learn more about Lambert Eaton Myasthenic Syndrome and how to get involved in the Lems community at www.lemsaware.com. Lems Aware, turning Lems knowledge into strength. The Lems Aware podcast is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients to shape the future of medicine. Thank you.